Well, good morning and Happy New Year. For those uh, who didn't get quite enough football yesterday, uh, there is some more on this afternoon. And then, of course, tomorrow night is the uh, last Monday night game of the year. And then next weekend we have the playoffs to look forward to. So those who uh, are not uh, too faint of heart yet have much to uh, to look forward to. Uh, this being the first Sunday of the new year, it's an appropriate time for us to uh, take a look back as well as take a look forward. And uh, to assist us in doing that, I would like us to uh, to look at a an interesting narrative from the life of, of David uh, found in 1 Samuel 23. I invite you to turn there with me now. This is a, a fairly long narrative. There are several different uh, scenes or episodes that that we encounter here in this chapter. We're going to read through the entire chapter with a few comments, and then we'll come back and try and uh, see how it applies uh, to our lives, and particularly this new year that uh, that we just began. Beginning in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 23, when David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Calah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? Uh, we're told in verse 1 that word comes to David that the residents of Calah are in imminent danger. The Philistines have made their way uh, toward that city and uh, with uh, intent to do very great harm are, are fighting against these people. Uh, we don't know how word came to David uh, concerning this. Uh, perhaps uh, it was uh, part of David's uh, intelligence community that uh, were reporting to him the, uh, the strategies and the whereabouts of, uh, of King Saul that also came upon this information and passed it on to him as well. It's interesting, though, that uh, word came to David that uh, Kayla was in imminent danger. There seems to be no indication from the narrative that word came to Saul and that Saul was concerned about the residents of, of this city. This was a Judean city uh, inhabited by uh, fellow uh, Hebrews, and yet, uh, word comes to David that uh, these people are in danger. Uh, Kayla, uh set uh, very near the Philistine border. Uh, it was a strategic city in terms of, uh, of sort of a first line of defense for, uh, for Palestine. Um, David was very concerned when he, uh, when he learned of the Philistines' uh, attack or impending attack. And so he begins to inquire of the Lord. Now, we'll run across this word inquire four times in the chapter. And uh, the uh, the word, the Hebrew word that's translated inquire is literally sha'al, which is very similar to the Hebrew name for Saul. And there's actually a play on words that uh, Samuel is employing here. Uh, David was inquiring, he was sha'al, he was inquiring of the Lord, whereas Saul was not inquiring of the Lord at all. He was depending upon his own ingenuity, and the contrast between these two men is very striking, as we'll see. David inquires of the Lord, and uh, the Lord uh, speaks to David. Uh, we're not told how. There doesn't appear to be a prophet or a priest with him at, at this point. 
but the Lord says in verse 2, Go attack the Philistines and save Calah. But David's men said to him, Here in Judah we, we are afraid. How much more than if we go to Calah against the Philistine forces? In other words, here in Judah, uh, we have enough to be concerned about because we're within striking distance of Saul. But if we're going to go to Cala, which resides on the Philistine border, then we've got uh, twice the uh, concern. We have both Saul as well as the Philistines to be uh, concerned about. So once again, David inquired of the Lord, verse 4, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Cala, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. The I there in verse 4 is emphatic. The Lord says, I will be the one to deliver you. I will be the one to protect you and to assure your victory. And so David and his men went to Cala and fought the Philistines and carried off their livestock. Apparently this was the uh, the plunder or the booty that the Philistines had, uh, had taken from uh, prior victories as they were moving uh, eastward. And he inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and he saved the people of Cala. Uh, now imagine how thankful and how grateful these residents of Cala must have been that David and his army of some 600 men, as we'll soon discover, make their way into the city and uh, ward off the, uh, uh, the danger of the Philistines, uh, defeating the enemy. I imagine that David uh, was probably expecting to be the town hero at this point, expecting the ticker tape parade down the main street of Cala to have a statue erected in the city park and to be given the keys of the city. As we'll soon see, uh, his, uh, his response or the response of the residents of Cala was quite different. And then there's a parenthetical thought in verse 6 that says, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down to him when he fled to David at Cala. Now we read of Abiathar, Ahimelech's son, in chapter 22, uh, Samuel records the ending to that uh, story uh, in chapter 22 because it made a nice conclusion. Uh, but actually, uh, David's encounter apparently with uh, Abiathar happened at Cala once David had, had arrived and presumably after the, uh, the city had been uh, delivered from uh, the Philistine danger. Ahimelech, of course, was... Uh, or Abiathar uh, was Ahimelech's son and uh, the only living priest to be spared uh, uh, Doag's uh, vengeance from chapter 22. And he brings with him the ephod, the priestly garment that we'll uh, talk about in just a minute. Uh, the town is delivered and uh, meanwhile back in Gibeah, Saul is receiving uh, intelligence reports of his own. In verse 7, he's told that David had gone to Cala and he said, God has handed him over to me, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. Literally, the phrase is two gates and one bar. And the picture that I have of it is much like a barn door, two doors that hang uh, next to one another uh, with opposite hinges on opposite walls that swing open to allow people to go into the city and then to go out. And when the door is shut, there's a bar, horizontal bar that's placed on the inside of the doors to keep the, the doors closed and to keep uh, the enemies out. And Saul surmises from 
the report that he receives that David is in a very vulnerable situation, uh, that he's uh, uh, capturable given uh, his location. And so Saul calls up all his forces in verse 8 for battle to go down to Kela to besiege David and his men. Uh, Saul assumed that David was uh, trapped. There was only one way in and one way out. And if he got there before David went out, then uh, then David would be history. Uh, apparently, though, David uh, had some intelligence uh, reports that he received as well because in verse 9, we're told that David learned that Saul was plotting against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod. David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Calah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Calah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. David asks uh, uh, Abiathar to bring the ephod. This was David's means of seeking direction from the Lord. Now, the ephod was simply a priestly garment that was worn over the shoulders and across the chest of the uh, the high priest when he would go into the uh, the holy of holies or or to the ark and and make sacrifice. Um, it was also uh, the place where the urim and the thummim were uh, stored when they were not in use. And now the uh, the urim and the thummim were these mysterious objects or medium by which the high priest would discern the Lord's will. They were placed outside of the ephod, but underneath the breastplate of the high priest when he would go into the, uh, into the Holy of Holies. And they were the manner by which the high priest would discern God's will. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to what this Urim and Thummim were. Uh, some have suggested that, that they were literally the, the twelve stones on the uh, the high priest's breastplate. Uh, Josephus, in his uh, Antiquities of the Jews, identifies them with uh, the two uh, stones that set on the shoulders of the ephod. He said that uh, that they would become very bright before a victory and when the sacrifice was acceptable, and they would become dark when disaster was impending. Another uh, Jewish historian suggested that uh, the Urim and the Thummim were actually stones uh, on which the words yes and no were written. There were three stones. One had yes written, one had no written. The other one was blank. And that they were kept inside of the priest's uh, garment and he would ask the Lord a question and he would pull out a stone, sort of like casting lots. And if the stone said yes, then the Lord's response was affirmative. If the stone said no, it was uh, negative. If the stone didn't have anything written on it, then the Lord was saying I guess you'll have to wait. Uh, we don't know what they were, but whatever they were, David uh, called upon Abiathar and the uh, the ephod and the Urim and the Thummim to discern the Lord's will for his, uh, his danger. You notice in verse 11, he asked two questions. Will the citizens of Calah surrender me to him? That's the first question. Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? That's the second David says, O Lord God, tell your servant. Notice the Lord answers only the second question. The Lord said, He will. Apparently the stone came out and it was yes. Um, 
the second question that uh, David, or the first question rather that David asks, he repeats in verse 12, will the citizens, or literally will the the leaders of Cala surrender me and my men to Saul? And again, the answer was yes, they will. Uh, Saul's plot is confirmed. And uh, David uh, very quickly learns from the Lord that rather than a ticker tape parade from the residents of Cala, uh, they intended to betray him. And uh, that betrayal is revealed here at this point. Uh, David was no dummy. Rather than uh, staying there and wait for danger, he, uh, he began to hightail it. Verses uh, 13 and 14, we read, And David and his men, about 600 in number, left Cala and kept moving from place to place. And when Saul was told that David escaped from Cala, he did not go there. Now, Saul learns that uh, David is gone and uh, the, uh, the plot that Saul had, had planned is, uh, is scrubbed. The mission is, is scuttled. And then we're told David stayed in the desert strongholds in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Now, Ziph was located about 10 to 12 miles southeast of Cala in the larger wilderness of Judea. Uh, and it was there that David took refuge. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. The Lord provided protection for David, provided refuge from Saul's uh, pursuit of him. But he not only provided uh, refuge and protection, he also provided encouragement. Listen, listen to what follows. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And then Jonathan went home. But David remained at Horish. Jonathan was, uh, as you remember, David's best friend. Uh, They had uh, weathered a number of storms together. Uh, And uh, once again, Jonathan sought out David to strengthen him and to encourage his faith in God. The phrase uh, in verse... uh, 16, and to help him find strength in God is literally to strengthen his hand on God. Apparently, David's hand was weakening. Uh, Jonathan sought him out to encourage him to, to bolster his spiritual uh, relationship with God and his spiritual life. And he does that by comforting David with the truth and with his friendship. He reminds David of God's promises. The Lord has promised that you're going to be the next king. In fact, I'm going to be second to you. I'm going to be your assistant. I'm going to help you in your kingdom. Establish your reign. I know that. In fact, my father Saul knows that. That's why he's out to get you. But he also comforts David with his friendship and with his love. You can imagine what a great encouragement this must have been to David uh, as he was feeling uh, very much uh, afraid, uh, very anxious, undoubtedly. Uh, probably very much alone, even though he was surrounded by 600 uh, loyal followers. Uh, Jonathan was for David as a, a, a drink of fresh water is to someone who's in a parched and weary land. Uh, 
Jonathan refreshed his friend. Now, unfortunately, Jonathan couldn't remove the threat uh, that his father uh, represented, as we'll see in verses 19 and following. The Ziphites um, went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hakalah, south of Jeshmon? Now, king, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for handing him over to the king. Now, Ziph was a uh, also a uh, city of Judah. The inhabitants were, uh, were fellow Israelites. Uh, they were neighbors, so to speak, of Cala in much the same way as Meridian would be a neighbor to, uh, to Boise. Uh, and here we find the Ziphites willing to do and offering to do what uh, David was told the uh, residents of Cala would do, uh, turn state's evidence against uh, David, a report of his whereabouts to the king. Uh, Ziph sat on a hill that was approximately 100 feet above the surrounding area. And so from their location, they had a panoramic view of David's uh, whereabouts. They knew the caves that he was hiding in. Uh, they knew where uh, he might be found, and they were willing to offer that to Saul. Now, we're not told what their motive was. Uh, perhaps it was patriotism. Although uh, in Psalm 54, the passage that we'll look at next week, uh, David describes them, uh, or at least their character, as being ruthless men, men without regard for God. And so for myself, I, I think they were probably motivated by more than patriotism. Probably they were motivated by a financial gain. Saul had made it very clear before, just a couple of chapters earlier, that he was willing to pay for information that would lead to the, the capture and, and execution of David. Saul is overwhelmed by their willingness to help. Uh, he replies in verse 21, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and make sure once more. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. And then I will go with you. And if he is in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. Saul says, uh, double-check your information. I want to make sure that you know exactly where he's at. And uh, more than that, I want to hire you as personal scouts. I want you to lead him to me. And I suppose in much the same way as, as Indians of the Old West were often used uh, by the cavalry as uh, personal scouts. And they offer to do so. Uh, they track him down, and in verse uh, 24 it says, they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. And now David and his men were in the desert of Maon. Now Maon was uh, approximately four miles south of Ziph. And uh, the, the first service had trouble with this. You have to listen real carefully. But, but the city of Maon, uh, legend has it, was the uh, ancient Near Eastern uh, um, place of origin for the, the condiment that uh, comes to us by a similar name today. Uh, you'll have to think about that one. <laughs> uh, 
David hides in the desert of Maon in Arabah, south of Jeshmon. Some of you are even now just trying to figure that one out. I think we'll scrap that one for the third service. Honey, you want to make a note? <laughs> As Saul and his forces were closing in, excuse me, Saul and his men began to search, verse 25, and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock. And we'll find out what that rock is in just a minute. And he stayed in the desert of Maon. And when Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in search of David. And Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. And then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. That is why they call this place Selah Hamalakath. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Now this is where the uh, the drama intensifies. The uh, Ziphites uh, lead uh, Saul and his uh, and his militia into the desert of Maon where they locate David. Uh, David and his men are on one side of a large rocky hill and Saul and his men are on the other side. And they're closing in on David. Uh, verse 26 literally reads, as they were encircling or circling the rock, just about to lay hold of David. News comes from the north just in the nick of time, in, in the 11th hour and 59th minute from David's perspective, Saul receives word that uh, the Philistines have attacked the north and that the north, uh, which contained Saul's home in Gibeah, was vulnerable. And so Saul calls off the, uh, the search. He calls off the manhunt. And David's life is spared. And this rock is given the name Selah Hamalakath, which literally means smooth or slippery rock. Uh, it's the same Hebrew word that was used of those five small stones that David put in his pouch before he went to do battle against, uh, against Goliath. But here we had a very large rocky hill and uh, it was given the name slippery rock because it was here that by God's intervention, David gave uh, Saul the slip. And from there, David moves on to En Gedi, uh, east of, of Maon, and uh, hides out uh, in the cliffs near the Dead Sea where he had adequate protection and, and an abundant supply of water. Now, what, what does this story have to do with New Year's? What can we learn from this story uh, that helps us to assess the last year and to look forward to the next? Well, I want to ask you to put yourself in David's shoes. How do you suppose he felt during this period of his life? Uh, certainly fearful and anxious. Uh, who wouldn't as the enemy was closing in around him? But I wonder if David also felt a little bit or perhaps a lot of resentment and anger. He would certainly have reason to. Kayla, the city that he had just rescued from imminent peril, was willing to turn on him. 
There was no key to the city. There was no statue in Central Park. There was the intent to turn state's evidence, to turn him in. These were his own people. These were residents of Judah. These were David's brothers, as were the Ziphites, his fellow countrymen, who were willing to to let Saul know where he was in order to line their pockets. How do you feel when those that are closest to you don't come through with the sort of support that you expect them to, the sort of support that they should provide for you, the sort of support that you deserve? You faithfully worked for an employer for quite a while and only to discover that you've been passed over for promotion. Or perhaps after several years of faithful service, you're asked to take an early retirement because the company is downsizing and they're trying to get rid of of, uh, those that make the most money. Or perhaps in, in your marriage, you find at times that your husband or your wife is is too preoccupied with his or her own needs and inattentive to yours. Perhaps they're consumed with their hobbies and their pursuits and recreation. Don't take notice of your cries for attention, of your need for for encouragement, of your desire for intimacy. Or how about a close Christian friend? Do you ever find that that your Christian friends just don't come through for you in the way that you'd like them to? You've ministered to them in in their time of need. And yet when you're crying out for help, they don't seem to be paying attention. They don't seem to be responding as you'd like them to. It's discouraging, isn't it? It's confusing. It's unsettling. And I, I suspect that that's some of what David experienced at this point in his life. I think he was angry. I think he was struggling with resentment, as any of us would be. But I want you to notice that David could have avoided all of this. He could have avoided the resentment. He could have avoided the anger. He could have avoided the confusion if he had merely chose to turn a deaf ear to the information that he received in verse 1. You see, if he hadn't helped his brothers of Calah, he would have been safe. His whereabouts would have been unknown to Saul. His life would not have been placed in danger. You know, isn't that the way it works for us as well? We don't risk anything in relationships when we withhold ourselves. We're protected. People can't disappoint us if we don't expect them to come through for us. But when we respond in love to the needs that others have, our expectations begin to grow. Our hopes give way to expectations. And our expectations eventually become demands for a love that's requited in the same way. That's why we're disappointed with other people. That's why our feelings get hurt when they don't come through for us in the way that we want them to. And because the battle is larger than life itself, because we're involved in a spiritual battle, the evil one uses these human failures of one person to another to disrupt our unity with one another. 
to sow the seeds of unrest and mistrust. Do you know those feelings? Is there someone in your life right now with whom you feel very distant and separated? As you look back on this last year, has someone hurt you very deeply? Are you still feeling the sting of that hurt? Where do we go with those feelings? What are we to do with them? Notice what David does here. Several times, four times in this passage, we find David turning to God. David inquiring of the Lord. Now, certainly he was seeking God for direction and for protection. He turned to Abiathar and the ephod as the means by which David might discern God's will for his life. But I think he was turning to God for much more than that. I think he was turning to God to strengthen his heart, to deal with the the impulses that David would have as a sinner, even as we as we are, to give in to frustration, to give in to resentment, to give in to anger. He was turning to the Lord for protection from himself. Now, given all the revelation that we have today, the uh, the ephod seems very elementary. In fact, almost crude. Uh, who of us would? Uh, would think of putting three stones in our pocket and and asking the Lord questions and then waiting to see how he would respond. But nevertheless, for David, David was willing to accept God's answers through whatever means God chose to, to use. And he was willing to trust God for his life. God's promises of protection and support in whatever form God chose to provide them were enough for David. And with that, he was willing to be content. Can you say that? I have to ask myself the same question. Can I say that? When we find ourselves unsupported by those that we've counted on, when our husband or our wife isn't coming through for us, isn't being for us all that we need them to be, when our friends are too busy with their own lives to, to notice our needs, can you say and can I say, Lord, you're enough? I'll trust you and whatever you choose to provide. And with that, I'll be content. Can you say that? Some of you say, but David had Jonathan. Jonathan sought him out. He had companionship. He had a supporter. True. In this particular uh, crisis, Jonathan was there. And David was uh, grateful for Jonathan's presence. But you see, this would be the last time Jonathan would stand by David's side. And David had faced several dangers before this without him, and he would face many more without him. And in fact, as David's whereabouts become known to Saul and as Saul's pursuit becomes more intense, Jonathan is nowhere to be found. Jonathan had to return home. You see, as much as we want and desire to have a Jonathan by our side when 
the enemy is closing in around us, when he's encircling the rock that separates us from imminent danger, as much as we want that, we often, and I suppose ultimately, must face the dangers, the difficulties, and the disappointments with God alone. Wasn't that the experience of Jesus and the apostles? Where were Jesus' supporters as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying all night long that agonizing prayer? They were asleep. They couldn't even stay awake to pray with him. Where were Jesus' disciples as he hung upon the cross? Well, they had, they had become scared. They were scattered. You see, Jesus hung there with God alone by his side. Or Paul, the great apostle, at the end of his life as he finds himself in a Roman prison waiting for his second trial before Nero. What does he say of himself? He says in 2 Timothy, at my first defense, that would have been his first appearing before Nero, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. You see, the Lord will stand by you and He'll stand by me even when others don't. Even when others ignore our needs. Even when others let us down. He'll be faithful. He can be the one. He can be the only one and will be the only one at times who will give us what we need. His promise is sure. He says, I will never leave you nor will I forsake you. Now the problem with that is that most of us don't have the proof that we're looking for until after the danger or the struggle is behind us, do we? We've got the promise, but we don't have the proof. You see, that's the lesson of this narrative. God is in control, even though everyone else says they are. There's an interesting little word in Hebrew that occurs nine times in this chapter. It's the word that's translated several times, though not all nine times, by the English word hand. Look at verse 4. David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. God says he's going to do it. Look what Saul says in verse 7. God has handed him over to me, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. Look at what David asks of the Lord in verses 11 and 12. Quite literally, it reads, Will the citizens of Cala surrender me into his hand? That is, into Saul's hand. And again in verse 12, Will the citizens of Cala surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? Samuel writes in verse 14, Day after day Saul searched for him, but God did not give him into his hands. Verse 17, Jonathan reassures David, Saul will not hand you over to me. And then finally in verse 20, the Ziphites say, Come whenever it pleases you and we will be responsible for handing him over to the king. You see, seven times in this chapter, people say, we're in control. 
hand here being used as a reference for power or a metaphor for authority. Everyone claimed to have control. But as we see in verse 27, God alone was the one in ultimate control. And he used a most peculiar way of, of rescuing David. He used the Philistines. In the end, David saw that God was faithful, that God was in control. As you look back on 1993, how have you seen the Lord be in control in your life? How has God proven His faithfulness to you? How has He provided for you or protected you in the midst of frightening and painful circumstances? And as we stand on the threshold of 1994, what, what are you facing? What challenges lie before you? What difficulties? Are you still waiting for the Lord to act? Do you feel alone and find yourself uh, on one side of a slippery rock with the enemy on another? If so, keep listening to God. Keep coming to, to our ephod. Keep trusting His promises and His provisions. And keep waiting for Him to act on your behalf. The psalmist says the nearness of God is our good. And that's true. It is. When all other dangers surround us, the nearness of God is our good. The nearness of God is our refuge, our protection, our courage, and our strength. With Him by our side, we will be safe. Let's pray. Father, it's often difficult to um, to know how to respond to the, the flood of emotions that fill us when we find ourselves feeling very much afraid, alone, confused, but particularly, Lord, when we find ourselves disappointed and hurt because of the failures of others. We want so much to be loved to be cared for, to be protected. And Lord, quite frankly, we often forget that You alone are the only one who can can do that for us. Thank You for this example from David's life. Thank You for Your faithfulness to him. It's that same faithfulness, Lord, that we look to and that we count upon because You've promised to stand by our side and to be for us all that we need, not only when others can't or don't provide for us, but because, Father, You alone are the only one who has promised to do so. We look to You today, Father, as we start this new year with a desire to see You and Your faithfulness in ever new ways, to count upon You, to trust You. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.